Good evening. Welcome to the Critical Hour. We're coming to you from the capital of the United States of America, Washington, D.C., here on Radio Sputnik. I'm Garland Nixon, here with my co-host, Dr. Wilmer Leon. Thank you, Garland. For the next two hours, we will explore and analyze the salient news stories that are impacting the global village in which we live. Russia has decided to vacate the Black Sea corridor grain deal due to NATO's use of it to launch drone attacks on the base of the Black Sea Fleet. Also, Moscow will help African countries obtain grain amid the suspension of the deal and Finnish law enforcement is finding that arms trafficking from Ukraine has gotten out of control. Joining us now to discuss these subjects, we have Regis Trimbley. He's a filmmaker and an American citizen living in Crimea. Regis, welcome back to The Critical Hour. Oh, thank you for having me. Sputnik International reports... Western powers have blamed Russia for supposedly blocking the export of Ukrainian grain shipments, which are vital for parts of Africa and the Middle East. However, Moscow has denied blocking them, and Kiev has repeatedly acted to disrupt the safety measures made to allow such exports. Ukrainian drones were used the humanitarian corridor to attack Sevastopol and put these grain shipments at risk. Regis, your thoughts? Well, um, I was just in Sevastopol. Uh, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, was supposed to be there Sunday, um, the day that these naval and aerial drone attacks on Sevastopol Harbor uh, happened. I had to return home because of an emergency on Saturday night, but I have friends that were there, and our hotel was only five minutes away, walk away from Sevastopol Harbor. What happened was that the Russian naval and aerial defense systems uh, eliminated every one of the attacks, missiles that were fired. Russia further recovered part of one of the naval uh, drones that came from the Ukrainian coast, somewhere near Odessa, and they were able to read the memory, the the uh, internal memory system of this drone, and they traced it all the way back to, to Ukraine. As a result of this, Russia pulled out of the grain deal with Ukraine, Turkey, the United Nations, because of this act of terrorism and because Russia did not believe that the passage of this grain was safe and because they believed that Ukraine and the West were using this to as an arms shipment route into into Ukraine. Russia further announced that in addition to Turkey inspecting all cargo ships coming in and out, Russia itself would inspect them. Now, as you mentioned, Russia has promised to send grain and cereals to those countries that are needing it in the Southern Hemisphere, mostly Africa. Um, Russia uh, is not going to allow 
any further attempts, and I underscore this, by the UK, who they have identified as the country using their special operations and technology to have blown up the pipelines and to have orchestrated and commanded the blowing up of the Crimean Bridge. Russia is no longer playing games and believing anything coming from the West. And that's my take today on what happened this weekend. There is a report in antiwar.com, Russia launches more strikes on Ukrainian infrastructure after Crimea drone attack. Yesterday, Russia launched more missile barrages against energy infrastructure and said Ukraine launched a drone on the Black Sea fleet. Uh, what type of damage, uh, if, if you're able to provide any type of assessment, what type of damage are these uh, missiles having on, on the uh, Ukrainian infrastructure? Well, it, it's a great question. I'm glad you asked it because uh, 10 minutes ago, I finished an interview with um, a Russian, a former diplomat, was a high-ranking official uh, on all things nuclear, nuclear war, nuclear treaties, etc. And he does a daily report on everything that's happening in this Russian special military operation. I asked him, I said, I've been hearing that as much as 40% of Ukraine's electrical grid affecting water and even transportation uh, has resulted in these massive missile strikes that Russia has begun since the bridge in Kiev was blown up and the pipelines were blown up. He said to me, that assessment of 40% is greatly underestimated. He estimated it to be as high as 60 or 70% not repairable. Today's November 1st. The temperature in Kiev this morning was 35 degrees Fahrenheit. The mayor of Kiev, Klitschko, former world heavyweight boxing champion, is concerned that many of his people will freeze to death this winter. He's pleading for emergency uh, generators. They want to they install 1,000 heating centers in Kiev alone so that the people can go to and not freeze. Russia in these missile attacks has taken this conflict to another level without sacrificing one soldier on the ground. This is crippling Ukraine and America and NATO's ability to conduct war in Ukraine with these strikes and with winter approaching. It seems to me, you know, the term that comes to mind for me, to me, uh, and I've been thinking this for a long time, collapse, that, you know, people think there'll be like some major battles and, oh, they'll fight it out. And, you know, they'll people, somebody will go out in a blaze of glory. It seems to me that if your um, if your energy grid is collapsing, you can't have any kind of uh, business. You can't have any kind of industry. You can't make money. So your economy collapses when your when your energy grid collapses and ultimately you can't 
um, get things to the front. You can't uh, get move things around. It seems to me that rather than, you know, some big fight out, you know, or, or some big, excuse me, you know, battle, it seems to me that Ukraine is more likely to kind of collapse into into chaos and be unable to continue to maintain um, a war footing. What are your thoughts? Well, those are exactly my thoughts. Um, you know, I would say a week ago, I didn't see that as possible. Uh, even a few days ago, with the 70,000 initial uh, troops that Russia has brought up of the 300,000 are now on the front line. With the rest of them about to come to the front line and the evacuation of the city of Kherson, 70,000 people were evacuated. I was expecting, as others, something really big, an attack on the ground across the 1,100-kilometer front was about to happen. Those 300,000 troops are still going to play a big part in something. But now, as you mentioned, Garland, I see the complete inability of Ukraine not only to support ordinary life, business, food, shopping, water, electricity, heating homes, but transportation hubs are, hubs are also being attacked by missiles. And this is the will be the complete inability of Ukraine, of the United States, NATO, to coordinate any further military activity on the ground. In other words, Ukraine and this whole effort from the West is being crippled without a tremendous loss of life. There are a couple of points that I've heard repeated today on NPR. One is Ukraine is accusing Russia of attacking civilian targets. And they and this was in the context of the electric uh, infrastructure as well as water. And the second point, they said that Ukraine that Ukraine has intercepted almost 90% of the cruise missiles that Russia launched, but they did say that the missiles that got through caused serious damage. Your thoughts? Well, <laughs> on, on the last one, about 90% of Russian missiles have been intercepted as baloney, because uh, to create that kind of devastation on the ground, uh, it's simply not possible. Even the Ukrainians themselves are saying that only a few of the missiles are being intercepted. Um, it, what was your first part of that question? The first part was that Russia's attacking civilian targets, and that was in the context of the infrastructure, the utility damage. Yeah, well, it's really ironic, you know, because Ukraine for the last eight years has been attacking civilians. And not only the the infrastructure of the Donbass, of water, electricity, transportation, um, the entire uh, civilian areas of both Lugansk and uh, Donetsk People's Republics have been devastated for eight years. Some 30,000 people have been killed. Uh, 35 or 40,000 people have been injured. Uh, Ukraine has dropped these little pellet uh, mines 
millions of them across the Donbas that are designed to kill civilians. So when Ukraine says that Russia is attacking civilians by attacking the infrastructure and trying to save civilian lives by not sending the military in to clean out the Ukrainian Nazi and Western mercenaries, it's completely laughable because of what Ukraine has done. Now they're accusing Russia of the same thing. And the facts on the ground simply do not support that scenario. Here's another interesting article from uh, antiwar.com. Finnish law enforcement arms sent to Ukraine ending up in the hands of criminals. Things that the three of us have been talking about this for months now. They're flooding Ukraine with weapons, clearly with all the crime families and all the crime organizations. We knew they were going to start showing up in Europe. Your thoughts? Well, (laughs) I'm glad you brought that one up because we have been talking about it for at least a few weeks that 70% of the arms and money sent to Ukraine are not ending up helping the troops. There's been, as far as the money is concerned, it's been going to oligarchs, it's been going to Zelensky himself and those people around him. In terms of the weapons, it's been reported, as you mentioned, that these weapons are falling into the hands of terrorist groups. They're on the black market. Finland, as you just mentioned, said they're going into the hands of criminals in in Finland. There are other Americans who have said it is terrible that these weapons are getting into the hands of terrorists because they can now attack Western centers, including the United States, with these weapons, uh, commercial airlines. Uh, and so what this is this is something that is for me intensifies the danger to the rest of the world that this amount of weapons and money is going out of Ukraine and not into it and where can people find i understand you have a channel online where you do videos yeah i do uh i have uh bitshoot and rumble where i post my video podcast I'm there as Trem Reggie, T-R-E-M-R-E-G-I. I cover many of these subjects. Regis Trembley is a filmmaker and American citizen living in Crimea. You're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm your host, Garland Nixon, with my co-host, Dr. Wilmer Leon. More on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm your host, Garland Nixon, here with my co-host, Dr. Wilmer Leon. Thank you, Garland. Presidents Petro and Maduro will meet in Caracas to discuss mutual concerns. Also, Latin American leaders can congratulate Lula da Silva on his win as President Bolsonaro contemplates his next move. Joining us to to discuss this, we have Jamal Thomas. He's the co-host of Fault Lines, a morning show right here on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. Jamal, welcome back to The Critical Hour. Thanks, man. How are you guys doing today? We are doing wonderful. Common Dreams reports 
A Brazil of hope as leftist Lula defeats far-right Bolsonaro in presidential runoff. The Workers' Party candidate, who completed a remarkable political comeback less than three years removed from a prison cell, tweeted one word following his win, democracy. But, you know, a question you've been asking and we need to contemplate, what does this in reality, in practical application and for the Brazilian people in policy? Jamal, what does this mean? That is the question, right? I mean, Lula takes power. It seems that the world leaders are basically congratulating him, especially on the left. I mean, if you think about it, Biden has basically sent his congratulations, Putin has sent his congratulations. Uh, pretty much all of the leaders that were in uh, Latin America or South America has basically sent congratulations, including Venezuela, Cuba, um, Rafael Correra, the one who used to be head of Ecuador, that they basically tried to lock up the one who protected Julian Assange. All of these guys basically sent congratulations. Now, when Lula takes power, he takes power in January. That's assuming that there's no nefarious weirdness. It doesn't seem like there is. From a legal standpoint, it seems that the political devices in the country have basically accepted that Lula won. You have protests. You have those protests that are blocking various exits and everything else. So there's that. But from a legalistic standpoint, the world leaders and the leaders of the country itself have accepted Lula as president. So when he takes power, what is the power that Lula going to have? The Congress at this point is divided. However, when you get into things like climate change or you get into policy that the president controls, Lula will have a huge amount of sway in that, every bit as much as Bolsonaro did. And so I have to be honest, that question is looming. I mean, what is he going to do? How is he going to do it? It's all of this kind of overjoy um, feeling that seems to be outpouring from the world and everything else. What does it mean in practice? And that is a hard question to answer. I mean, I imagine, yes, climate change. I imagine that these governments are going to be working together. I imagine that Brazil is probably going to be making inroads with China, Russia, potentially even Cuba, potentially even Venezuela, meaning Lula is on the left. I mean, there are pictures of him shaking hands with Castro and whatnot. So this is not something that is necessarily beyond his scope in regards to making these ties and connections. And keep in mind, you have BRICS, which is this kind of secondary economic organization. I would imagine that he's probably going to lean into that, especially with countries like Saudi Arabia, Iran, Turkey, all trying to get into it, creating this kind of second economic order. It's a really good question. I mean, the first time around, Lula was able to bring, what, 20 million people out of poverty when he was in president. So we have, as you mentioned, uh, Joe Biden sending his congratulations. We've got President Putin sending his congratulations. But Bolsonaro hasn't conceded yet. And amidst the threats of uh, a possible coup, so is this Bolsonaro being truculent, obstinate, Trump-esque? Are we expecting a January 6th in Brazil? Uh, any discussion about that at this stage of the game? Actually, from a legalistic standpoint, Bolsonaro is screwed. I mean, he's isolated at this point. In fact, members of Bolsonaro's own team has come out and started to make – basically, people behind the scenes are trying to push him to basically concede – and his communications right here, Bolsonaro's communication minister, Fabio Feria, told Reuters that Bolsonaro was expected to meet with the Supreme Court justices ahead of a speech. Now, he's supposed to speak today. In fact, he's supposed to be speaking anytime now. At this point, it can come out at any moment. But close political allies, including Chief of Staff Ciro Nogueira and Vice President Hamilton Moro, have already begun to make contact with Lula's team in order to for the transition between the two. Also, many of the political leaders that are in the country that were Bolsonaro supporters have basically come out accepting that Lula has won. Now, you may get a few lunatics, like the woman who chased the black guy down with a gun, who <laughs> um, is still telling them to keep going. And you have some truckers 
who are out there that want him to overthrow the government. But the legalistic aspect of this, no, he's isolated if he comes out and says anything. He's expected, though, the reporting is saying that Bolsonaro is expected not to necessarily concede, but to accept the election results, which is basically, okay, I'm going to grudgingly accept that Lula um, has won, but I'm not necessarily saying that I was defeated. So we'll see. He's supposed to be giving a statement any time now. Um, but like I said, from a legal, legalistic standpoint, the world leaders has accepted Lula. The people in the country itself, meaning from the standpoint of the political space and the people around him, have accepted Lula. And considering that his own people have started to make inroads with Lula's transition team, from his standpoint, I have no idea what he's going to say. But if he comes out screaming fraud and comes out screaming that he's not going to accept the results, he, he has a problem. Meaning he doesn't have this backing. It wasn't like Trump, where Trump had 100 senators willing to set themselves on fire for him. Bolsonaro really looks at this moment politically isolated. Has he also lost the military to that point? That's an interesting question. Even not just the military, the police. Keep in mind, right. the Supreme Court, Alexander de Morales, the one for the Supreme um, Tribunal, basically the Electoral Supreme Court, has told him, basically, get rid of those protests, remove those protests, and saying, we are going to charge those truckers $20,000 an hour for as long as they stay out there. The police didn't listen. The highway police didn't listen. And uh, Savini, I believe the guy's name is, um, Vasquez, he is the head of the highway police. Um, Mortis comes out and says, if you don't do it, we will put you in jail, or for that matter, we will charge you $20,000 also. Reports came out that the police was basically blowing him off. So the state police were commissioned to get involved. You even have the mayor, I'm sorry, the governor of Sao Paulo basically sending out the state police in order to clear the protesters, in some cases using tear gas and everything else. Now, the police are saying it's not their fault. Now, they say, according to the federal police, on Tuesday morning, protesters were blocking highways partially or fully in more than 200 locations as part of demonstrations spread to 21 of Brazil's 27 states. Now, the highway police announced on Tuesday that 421 blockages had gone up by Monday night. Security forces managed to clear 200 locations. By Tuesday afternoon, there were still 267 active blockades. Now, the catch here is that these things are affecting um, how people get food how people get energy. You have shortages in some cases. In some cases, there are just no gas um, for people to get in their car, causing spikes in prices. You have some people who can't get their medical treatments. I mean, it's gotten serious. Some of the flights have been shut down. I think it was like 20 flights have been shut down. Now, the police are coming out. They're saying, quote, the posture of the current president of the republic, Ayer Bolsonaro, in maintaining silence and not recognizing the results of the polls has made it difficult to pacify the country, encouraging some of his followers to accept the blockade action on Brazilian roads. Meaning the police are saying, look, we're trying to get rid of these blockades, despite the fact that you see video of some of the cops basically saying, we're here with you. Okay, let's say that's not all of the cops. Let's say some of the cops are doing the job that the court told them to do. Well, their argument is it's not our fault. Bolsonaro not coming out, not accepting the results, not saying anything is inflaming the protests from the various truckers who are basically backing him. So that's interesting. I mean, you get this weird situation where the state police are basically trying to go out there and do the job that the federal police were commissioned to do. And my first question was, what, are state police going to fight cops, beyond federal cops? Like, what does this mean in practice? The Superior Court, meaning the highest court of the land, has basically come out and co-signed Alexander de Morales, basically the head of the, um, the, the electoral court. And they basically came out and said, look, he's right. Do your job. And so the federal police chief may get put in jail if it doesn't comply. It's fascinating. Now, the catch is the military, I have no idea. I haven't seen any reporting yet 
in regards to where the military stands on this, because at this point they haven't necessarily been called in to do anything. But it is a weird factor to be president and have a device like the police force to be clearly in the hands of the other president. It's super weird. Well, now, here's something I'd like to get your thoughts on. When, you know, one of the things you said, everybody, Vladimir Putin, Joe Biden, you name it, everybody uh-huh. saying congratulations, congratulations, congratulations. Here's, here's a word that comes to mind. Leverage. He is now the president yes. of the fifth largest and the seventh most populist country in the world. More black people anywhere else in that country other than in the continent on the continent of Africa. The BRICS is Brazil is the first word and BRICS is growing rapidly. He's talked about, hey, we maybe we should have a new um, currency in South America. This guy at geopolitically right now. This guy has massive leverage. Everybody has to be friends with him. What are your thoughts? Uh, that's super interesting. I mean, because if you look back, when Lulu was put in a cage, there were elements of the U.S. that was implicated in basically helping put him in that cage. So now he's out. He's a superstar again, right? And like you said, B in BRICS stands for Brazil, <laughs> which is going to be a massive, con- I mean, massive from the standpoint of their economic might and everything else. Um, that is the question. I mean, that is honestly the question that that that's the first thing that I thought of. It was like, okay, what does this mean in practice? Like, it's one thing for all of these world leaders to basically say, hey, congratulations. It's another thing to be able to get into the politics of it and kind of sausage making of it. And what does it mean? Um, My first thought is issues with Cuba, Venezuela, um, China, Russia, those countries may come to the forefront. I mean, they're already part of BRICS, right? Between China, Russia Mm -hmm. and um, and Brazil. And so I would imagine closer interaction with those countries, considering they're already part of BRICS. And to your point, Turkey, um, Saudi Arabia, uh, these countries are basically trying to get in bed with BRICS also. I mean, BRICS at this point seems to be turning into a secondary economic order from, let's say, the Western order at the exact same time where Europe is basically taking it in the teeth based on their own idiotic policies of joining Joe Biden, a man with a 39 percent approval rating, jumping themselves off of a cliff and slitting their wrists before they hit the ground. And so while Europe is basically setting itself on fire, or better yet, freezing to death, but BRICS has gotten to the point of basically being ascendant. I mean, it's if you're going to get someone like Turkey or somewhere like Saudi Arabia, or for that matter, even Iran, all of these countries are basically saying we want a second economic order. And they're looking at either BRICS or the Shanghai Cooperation Organization or Belt and Road as that secondary economic order at the exact same time that Europe is basically slitting its own wrists. It's fascinating. Leverage. Yes. Yes. And especially if you're getting a situation where these all of these South American countries or these Latin American countries are working in some level of coordination and tandem, which considering all of these left wing governments, that may be the case. It may be the case. And it probably is going to be considering all of the people get them accolades and congratulations. Yeah, he's probably going to be working with these people for a closer economic union. And I strongly suspect closer ties with Russia and China. Look, It's major. I mean, it's not one of those things you can really underestimate because it's kind of hard to see what it is until he kind of gets in office. But he's already kind of made talks about the Ukraine war, basically saying we're not going to get in war. We're not going to be involved in that nonsense. And you can expect him to basically have closer ties with Russia and China just by definition of being part of BRICS. And and in fact, um, Bolsonaro, I mean, just simply practically speaking, Bolsonaro was had kept his ties with Russia because 
They needed fertilizer. Jamal Thomas is the co-host of Fault Lines. It's a great morning show from 7 to 10 a.m. Monday through Friday. That's Eastern Standard Time right here on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. And you can find them visually also there on Rumble. Great show. Check it out. You're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm your host, Garland Nixon, with my co-host, Dr. Wilmer Leon. There's more on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back, and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm your host, Garland Nixon, here with my co-host, Dr. Wilmer Leon. Thank you, Garland. The U.S. Department of Homeland Security has been working directly with social media giants to believe speech in favor of the U.S. government narratives. Also, the FBI is trying to seal Seth Rich's laptop for 66 years. Joining us to discuss this, we have Steve Porkin, and he's a national organizer for Action for Assange. He hosts Slow News Day on Rockfin and Steve, what's your other show on Rockfin? AM Wake Up, Garland. AM Wake that's Up. Monday. Yes, sir. That's Monday through Friday, 7 a.m. Pacific time. Uh, awesome, awesome, awesome. Now, here's a big one. You know, if you talked about Seth Rich a year or so or a couple years ago, you were called a mad, crazy conspiracy theorist and there's nothing to see here. And now we learn that after denying they had it, why is the FBI now to, trying to hide info about Seth Rich's shooting from the public for 66 years? I understand you've been working on this story. You have actually interviewed the attorney that's working on this uh, on this case. Tell us about it. Steve Poikinen. Yeah, I I first started, I reached out to Ty Clevenger, who has been uh, the one attorney who's been able to file the successful Freedom of Information Act uh, suits that have given us any sort of glimpse as to what the FBI has been doing uh, with a laptop that they had claimed that they didn't have. Um, in 2020, he's come on the show a couple of times. We've had uh, some really exploratory conversations uh, about all of this, and this is again prior to them, you know, trying to say, well, uh, these are technically this laptop is like the Pfizer documents. We've got to hold on to them for seventy-five years. <laughs> in this case, sixty-six. Um, prior to all of this, uh, Ty's working thesis was that there are very many more questions that remain than any sort of answers that have been provided. The answers that the FBI was giving along the way didn't add up to uh, to timeline, to all available reality. Uh, the fact that uh, the family had changed their position a little bit and then a lot of bit after a visit uh, from a couple of people in the, uh, in the FBI and the State Department, there's a number of different things that would lead someone to conclude that they would need to continue filing Freedom of Information Act requests because the FBI, as we all know, isn't very forthcoming when it comes to information that they would uh, rather us not see. Um, and I end on Nazi, uh, pun unintended. So what does this say to you about the FBI? That uh, And also, in this same story, it says... Uh, it also reported the FBI is withholding three reports produced by CrowdStrike uh, 
in the 2016 in, in reference to an alleged hack on the servers belonging to the DNC. Well, to me, that tie, that and Seth Rich, Rich ties to the Clintons. So it what, does. Go ahead. go ahead. Sorry. No, no. Because uh, I, I was just going to uh, mention the uh, Jimmy Hoffa and the kidnapping of the Lindbergh baby. So, <laughs> so and the Clintons. So go ahead. Yeah, I mean, the CrowdStrike reports are pretty significant because what what we've been able to um, narrow down in terms of speculation is that their internal reports saying, uh, yeah, no, we did check. There was no hack. Um, yeah, no, we, we checked at the speeds. It would have to be uh, a download from, you know, the calls coming from inside the house. It would corroborate what... Ray McGovern, the veteran intelligence professional for sanity, reported on years ago about this. Uh, it would corroborate all of the uh, all of the forensic analysis that Bill Benny did, um, and it's it, it's pretty easy to to tell at this point that if you're holding on to something that you told the public you didn't have, you're now six years past the murder. The uh, the brand new theory that the FBI is suddenly politicized, gentlemen. Um, well, it, it appears that they were highly politicized at least six years ago. Uh, it appears that this is a 100% politically motivated maneuver on the part of the FBI to withhold information from the public, from the family of the victim. Um, and, and it's information that at the time, if we carry the thesis to its conclusion and or Lindbergh baby joke, uh, about the Clintons that that uh, that would have dramatically changed the political landscape going forward for the next six years to where we are now. The Intercept Truth Cops leaked documents outlined DHS's plan to police disinformation. The Department of Homeland Security is quietly broadening its effort to curb speech it considers dangerous. An investigation by The Intercept has found years of internal DHS memos, emails, and documents obtained via leaks and an ongoing lawsuit, as well as public documents, illustrate an expansive effort by the agency to influence tech platforms. I think you got to take the word influence and turn that into il- illustrates and uh, pretty much uh, control. Any, at any rate, your thoughts on this? I think it's there's a lot of information, few issues with the article, but there's a lot of good information in this article. Your thoughts, Steve Poikinet. What The Intercept has done with, with this article is, is gather up um, a pretty you know, not insignificant amount of data and, and information that was available uh, in real time that a number of us reported on. I'm pretty sure a couple of the things in this piece, a lot of the stuff in this piece all around the, uh, the, the Ministry of Truth Disinformation Governance Board, uh, we, you and I, gentlemen, we talked about it in real time. Um, the first real, you know, Alan McLeod did some fantastic work out of Mempress. Uh, so it's a, it's a good kind of, I guess, look back as we wind down the year on uh, what the last couple of years of overt government, not just influence, but manipulation of quote unquote private platforms was. And, and I'm glad that uh, maybe for the first time, uh, the Intercept audience is going to be able to to take a look at this information and start to process it. Um, I hope 
that it has an impact going forward on how some people view these institutions uh, and a lot of these companies and a lot of these corporations. Um, so, you know, that's, that's good. <laughs> I'm, I'm a, I sound like, I sound like this because we got kicked off of YouTube for talking about this. I sound like this because economic sanctions were levied against me and a lot of my colleagues for reporting on this and discussing it in real time. So, uh, and we were getting yelled at by the authors of this piece and called conspiracy theorists and told that we were promoting this and disinformation that they're now going to get some accolades for, for they're treating it like it's a breaking story. Uh, so I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm of two minds on the piece, uh, I guess we'll say. And when you talk about people understanding the entities or organizations that are involved in this, how concerned should people be that we're talking about the Department of Homeland Security, that when you look at why that organization was created and what that organization was allegedly initially responsible for doing, and now you have that organization policing speech in the United States, that's a very, very, very dangerous path, a very slippery slope to go down. Well, it's, I mean, the, it's not, it's not even a slippery slope anymore. It's a, an under construction superhighway that we talked about, I believe on this show, uh, the, the panel that was convened in Kiev where they were, uh, members of the state department were talking with a couple of people in some network media about whether or not, uh, was information terrorism could be introduced into the DHS purview. Where any of us who share an article, write an article, do a show could be charged with information terrorism. So it, it's not we're we're past the slippery slope argument. We're fully under construction of this is a thing. We're also two years into uh, two years into pre-crime. We're two years into thought crime now. So as a a policy of the Department of Justice. So the, the theoretical is gone from this equation entirely. We are living in the dystopian fiction novel. What's interesting is they talk about the 2020 election and that uh, members of the U.S. community were working with these uh, various social media platforms. Um, they say emails between the Department of Homeland Security officials, Twitter and the Center for Internet Security outline the processes. Um, it seems to me that one of the things that's going on is an attempt to control the election, things like the Hunter Biden lap laptop, um, in the guise of preserving the election. Steve? Yeah, it's the, the, good, the good old excuse of, well, I was only doing it because I love the country so much. I was only doing it because you all deserved to be kept safe from this harmful information. And it is one of the most disingenuous uh, displays of gaslighting that uh, that the state can do to you. Uh, Spike uh, Spike Cohen had a great tweet the other day, and he said, uh, "Government will break both of your kneecaps, and then." sell you a crutch with your own money that they robbed from you while you couldn't get up and say, hey, you know, if it wasn't for me, you wouldn't have those crutches. 
electric car charging in Italy more expensive than gasoline. Skyrocketing electricity prices have pushed the cost higher for EV drivers. Charging an electric car in Italy will cost 161% more than a year ago due to higher electricity costs, uh, it was reported last week. That's a small price to pay for saving the planet with uh, a piece of equipment that doesn't create any propulsion or generate any movement on its own. It just stores power that requires a bunch of rare earth minerals and lithium in order to get a massive amount of waste and destruction to the planet. We have green solutions for this, gentlemen, and they are in effect every day. And you can tell not just because the price of electricity is on fire, but so are the actual electric vehicles frequently. Um, This is clearly the only way forward to a sustainable future. Yes? Well, the thing that we see is this, that this, the so-called markets when it comes to energy are now so manipulated and the, and the instability in geopolitics is creating a point where no matter what they say they're going to address, whether it's the economy, whether it's uh, the uh, environment or, or, or whatever, the geopolitical world is so screwed up by the neocons that all of it falls victim to, uh, and none of it can be fixed as long as these neocons are um, tearing the world to pieces. It's, it's, a, it's a universal stress test. And they're seeing how much they can squeeze out of a certain population before they pop. Uh, Brussels was in the streets, France is in the streets, now it's Italy. Uh, they're going to ease up on Italy and try somewhere else next. It was the UK. It's a, it's a game of uh, will you revolt or not, and it's about to get really cold, and people aren't going to want to pay 161% over the cost of their regular bill for much of anything. It's going to be very, very tense, I believe. Steve Porkinen is a national organizer of Action for Assange and a host of Slow News Day on Rockfin on the weekends and AM Wake Up Monday through Friday, also on Rockfin. That's Rockfin, R-O-K-F-I-N dot com. Kind of like YouTube, only better. <laughs> You're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm your host, Garland Nixon, with my co-host, Dr. Wilmer Leon. There's more on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm your host, Garland Nixon, with my co-host, Dr. Wilmer Leon. Thank you, Garland. The U.S. is deploying nuclear-capable B-52 bombers to Australia Australia, in a move to raise the stakes against China. Also, North Korea argues that the U.S. is preparing to attack as military exercises on its border escalate. Joining us now to discuss this, we have K.J. No. K.J. is a peace activist, writer, and teacher. K.J., welcome back to The Critical Hour. Thank you. Pleasure to be with you. RT reports North Korea has condemned the U.S. and South Korea after the two allies launched a massive joint military drill, suggesting the air exercises are preparation for a nuclear strike on the DPRK while vowing to take, quote, all necessary measures to defend itself. You know, KJ, we always hear, oh, North Carolina, uh, North Korea is a paranoid and hermit and crazy. Well, just because you're paranoid doesn't mean that people aren't out to get you and that you don't have every reason in the world to be paranoid. Your thoughts, KJ? Yes, absolutely. I mean, North Korea has every reason to be paranoid. In fact, I would say they're not paranoid enough. 
But, you know, this is just on the tail end of massive military exercises. And then the U.S. went off and did some exercises with Japan and the Philippines. And now they're right back in Korea, you know, doing another set of massive exercises. We're told to deploy hundreds of warplanes and the aircraft will fly 1,600 sorties. So this is one of the largest uh, ever done historically. And the North Koreans uh, are simply trying to say, stop triggering our PTSD by threatening us, you know, every few weeks. Um, So uh, they're trying to get the U.S. to back down and de-escalate on this. And they're saying that, um, you know, they see this as part of a consistent uh, provocation on the U.S. to try and make the U. Uh, try to make North Korea blink and overreact, uh, and that they certainly don't see this as defensive. They see this as offensive, and they fit in part of a larger plan, Op Plan 5015, which is all about the decapitation of North Korea's command and control and their leadership. So when we put this, I think, in the broader context of the uh, trips to Taiwan, the, the Pelosi trips to Taiwan by the United States. Uh, we've got Wendy Sherman in Japan talking about the United States won't hesitate to use nuclear weapons if necessary. And now we have this uh, vigilant storm, U.S.-South Korean exercises uh, taking place. All of this trying to provoke something somewhere. And I'm still trying to understand to what end, to what point, why? Because I don't see a win coming out of this, whether it's North Korea responding, whether it's China responding. I I, I don't see the win here. Help me out. Uh, I don't see the win either, uh, Wilma. And, And frankly, you know, well, in fact, let me let me just let me win. quickly ask. Am, am, I'm sorry to cut you off, but am I right to combine all of these actions into in, into one action? Yes, you're absolutely correct. I mean, what we see is continual escalation and provocation against China. Uh, just recently, the U.S. you know has agreed to renew. Sorry, the Philippines has agreed to renew its military exercises with the United States, it will be conducting 500 military exercises. And then, of course, the escalation in Taiwan and then the military exercises with Japan, plus, you know, the extraordinarily escalatory rhetoric. Uh, All of this is provocation. And the logic of this has to do with, you know, what we've said is the third offset, that is dispersion, that the U.S. is dispersing forces and threats all around China. And this is an attempt to force China to spread itself thinly in its defense. That is, if we threaten from uh, Japan, Okinawa, Taiwan, the Philippines, and Australia, as well as, you know, the Luftwaffe was sending troops, uh, sorry, sending planes from Germany. uh, I mean, this is the idea is that you disperse it uh, so that China's targeted pinpoint uh, anti-access area denial, that is their defensive, regional defensive capacities, 
uh, will be neutralized because they will be forced to spread themselves so thinly. Well, you know, and at the same time, the U.S. is now says that the there's no point in talking to Iran about that deal. They're just finished doing nuclear attack exercises in the Black Sea around Russia, uh, blowing up pipelines. I mean, the bottom line is it's clear now that the lunatics are running the asylum and the Biden administration is just threatening everybody around the world as our economy collapses and they deliberately collapse the European economy. Your thoughts, KJ? You're absolutely correct. Not only is the European uh, economy collapsing, but it looks like a lot of the Asian economies uh, will start to collapse. Certainly South Korea is in a lot of hot water because of this chip war. And so, yes, you're right. There is no plan. There is no reason. There is no logic. It seems like endless provocation. Is it just this endless game of chicken or is there some method to this madness? I think anybody's guess uh, is, you know, is good. But certainly what we can see here is that there's a complete and total brinksmanship. And as I've said before, the ruling imperial elite see their power and their privilege draining away. And I think they are, uh, you know, high risk uh, uh, players who would rather see the end of the planet than the end of their privilege. And they are not averse to waging war or seeing uh, things escalate to global war in order to maintain their privileges. To your point about elites seeing their grip slipping away, Global Times has a piece, German biz community voices support for Schultz's China visit amid new pattern of bilateral ties as the scheduled visit by German Chancellor Scholz to China approaches, the German business community continues to support, voice support for enhancing economic ties with China, despite noises urging the German government to show a firmer stance on China. Is this an indication that the United States' hegemonic grip is loosening? I think the hegemonic grip has been loosening for a long time, which is why the U.S. is uh, using such extraordinary methods to bind itself and its allies together. And I think that the German viewpoint is that, you know, they said clearly that they are against decoupling from China. They want reciprocity and they understand that they are dependent on China in fundamental ways. Uh, and without China, there is no solution to these problems. This goes in line with what Xi Jinping said at the 20th National Congress, that we can create a world of mutual benefit and win-win cooperation. But uh, it's the U.S. which wants to polarize and create blocks uh, and force this takedown of China, which will end up hurting Everybody. And uh, the Global Times has an article, U.S. decoupling push endangers world stability. Can Washington see it in the same way that they are forcibly decoupling Europe from Russia and Europe is w getting wiped out? But what's also getting wiped out is NATO and the EU. They are on their, both of those organizations, as far as I'm concerned, are on their death knell. Um, they're trying to decouple from China out. The U.S. is number one trade partner, which will in turn wipe out 
the U.S. economy, the neocons and the lunatics that are running this country um, have no concern about the lives of everyday people. Your thoughts? Well, you know, they didn't get to where they are by having concern about the people. That's not drives them. That's not their uh, modus operandi. That's not their worldview. These are not compassionate, caring people, you know, who have the, the goodness uh, and the well-being uh, of their population at heart. These are, uh, you know, power brokers. These are people who reach the top because of the capacity to exercise power in uh unlimited ways, uh, or because uh, they were able to uh, be sycophantic and, and climb to the top. And so I think that, you know, we, we, are, we, we, we really have to understand this. And as for concerns about people, I mean, the thing is that as we spiral into the end game, as we, as we approach the precipice, we have to understand that the wounded predator is very, very dangerous. Uh, and I think that uh, I think things could get worse uh, before they get better, if at all. Following on this piece, U.S. decoupling pushes, uh, push endangers world stability. It says, as the U.S. continues to uh, its push to decouple from China, more and more countries are seeing clearly the possible impact of such an irrational action. And then we go back to the, the piece we previously talked about. German business community voices support for Schultz's visit to China. Well, with the relationship between China and Russia being what it is, uh, as Schultz moves to his discussions with China, isn't he indirectly increasing the probability that a better relationship with Russia would result. How about that? Yes, absolutely. I mean, everything that has been happening uh, has been increasing uh, Russia's relationship uh, with uh, the world uh, or, or forcing stronger relationships, and certainly between Russia and China, and certainly between the European countries. I think they have to come to their senses and understand if they are going to survive, not simply as countries, but even as civilization, that they have to step away from this precipice and normalize, renormalize relationships with Russia, certainly with China. That's 245 billion in the case of, uh, of trade, with, in the case of Germany alone. Uh, and that they have to understand that, you know, we can work for win-win cooperation, mutual development, rather than this extraordinarily polarized, lose-lose uh, uh, escalation to war. Uh, China is offering the world global economic development, and the United States is offering the world conflict and, and, uh, and polarization. Which one of these is the rational, logical choice to make? I do think the one that the people of Europe, uh, for starters, the people of Europe, they're starting to push back, and there's going to be big trouble in Europe because these governments who these I, I, I'm just going to use this word. They're traitors. They're traitors to their own countries. That these tr the traitor class is going to be caught between their people who are furious and their um, acquiescence to subservience to the U.S. empire. 
You're absolutely correct. And, you know, I think uh, we can use a kinder word. We can call them the comprador class, the quizzling class, <laughs> uh, the global ruling elite that does the bidding of Washington. But certainly they're not serving the interests of their people. And the people are enraged. They're outraged. They are, you know, they would not stand for it. And the simple fact is that if any of these countries were real democracies, we would see those leaders collapse in a New York minute. But the fact that they're holding on and the fact that they're starting to tighten the tourniquet around their uh, population shows us that things are not what they are, uh, are, are they're sold to be. Here's the thing, to your point, KJ, under other circumstances, I would see the elite being able to weather the storm, but the weather and the storm are actually the issue in terms of people being cold and people being hungry. And those are two things that you can't fool people on. I can't fool you into believing you're warm <laughs> and I can't fool you into believing you're fed. And those are two elements that I don't see the elite being able to manage. You're absolutely correct. I mean, the human body has a strange way of reconnecting to reality, right? <laughs> a hungry stomach, you know, uh, you know, knows, uh, you know, knows uh, which way the the your bread is buttered. And I think that the failure. If you of have bread to butter. If you have bread to butter, or if you have br if you have butter, right? <laughs> None of right. that is going to be the case. And so I think the ruling elite really need to get their heads out of their rear end and 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 do some real uh, statesmanship. This is not going to last. KJ No is a peace activist, writer, and teacher. You're listening to the Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm your host Garland Nixon here with my co-host Dr. Wilmer Leon. There's another hour on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm your host, Garland Nixon, here with my co-host, Dr. Wilmer Leon. Thank you, Garland. Russia will donate grain to Lebanon following its termination of the Black Sea grain deal. Also, Israel seizes more Palestinian land for settlements and Benjamin Netanyahu works to seize power in Israel. Joining us now to discuss this, we have Laith Marouf. He's a broadcaster and journalist based in Beirut, Lebanon. Laith, welcome back to The Critical Hour. Thank you for having me. Israeli authorities are going to confiscate thousands of square meters of private Palestinian land in the northern West Bank to expand a settlement in violation of international law and U.N. Security Council resolutions, condemning the Tel Aviv regime's land expropriation and settlement expansion policies in the occupied territories. Laith Marouf, your thoughts? Yeah, I mean, uh, look, the, uh, the confiscation of Palestinian land is ongoing. You know, every piece of what we call Israel is confiscated land. Uh, this is, uh, of course, uh, coming uh, at a time where the resistance on the ground in the West Bank is on fire. Uh, there's, uh, you know, close to uh, 30 Israeli uh, soldiers and settlers that have been um, 
liquidated by the placental resistance since the beginning of the year in the West Bank. So this is these are numbers that are huge, and I and clearly the this uh, confiscation of land is going to uh, lead to a violent reaction. The Palestinians will not stand for something like this, and uh, as we see. Uh, clearly, the Israeli authorities are trying to uh, show their their settler population that they are, uh, you know, able to break the will of the Palestinian people, and that's why there will be clearly resistance to this. There is a statement or a paragraph in this press TV piece, emboldened by former U.S. President Trump's all-out support. Israel has stepped up its illegal settlement construction activities in defiance of UN Security Council Resolution 2334. It seems as though, this is my opinion, it seems as though you've got Trump's all-out support and you have Biden's support by uh, his lack of statement. His, We don't seem to hear much from the Biden administration, which is tacit support. Uh, your thoughts, Laith Maruf? Yeah, I mean, even if the Biden administration has uh, problems with uh, some of the ultra, ultra extreme of Israel, uh, the Zionist, um, they will not be saying anything at this moment uh, because of, number one, the elections in the United States coming in November, the midterm elections. Uh, and uh, we know that uh, constantly these you know support for Zionism is used as a as a declaration by politicians in the United States and they jockey over showing who is more supportive of the Zionist colony uh, to get to the extreme Christian Zionist uh, population in the United States as well as the Jewish uh, supremacist population. And um, so, no, we will not hear anything from uh, Biden right now, especially that, of course, as we are speaking right now, the elections in uh, Israel, the fifth election in fourth year, four years is, is uh, uh, you know, uh, happening right now. So what do you think about the elections? I do think that like the uh, move to confiscate more um, Palestinian land, that that's part of, you know, the internal election to so, show who can be the most oppressive towards the Palestinians. They kind of view that as a positive thing. Um, your thoughts on the elections? Yeah, this is it's a wild situation. Uh, the most extreme uh, religious Zionist uh, group uh, and party are expected to become the kingmakers, like the third largest party in the parliament, uh, led by a um, member of Knesset, Gavir, who is um, you know, famous for going down into uh, Sheikh Jarrah neighborhood in Jerusalem, guns blazing with his uh, uh, settlers trying to push out Palestinians from the neighborhoods of Jerusalem. He comes from... Uh, Kiryat Arba, which was uh, one of the uh, most uh, racist, uh, you know, and of course all settlements in Israel are racist, but this is the most racist one that's in Hebron. Uh, his home came under uh, fire two nights ago by Palestinian resistance in the Hebron region. Um, and so this is a man who 
was a member in the Kahanist uh, movement, uh, the Jewish Defense League, as it's known in the United States, is the only um, Jewish group that is on the terrorist list of uh, the FBI. Um, and uh, so he is expected to become the uh, kingmaker and his party uh, will most probably align with Netanyahu, uh, who will most probably also come back to become the prime minister of the Zionist colony tomorrow. It's being reported in Haaretz that the turnout is the highest since 1999. And there's also a, uh, a, a section in this piece, Arabs have an opportunity to express their clear stance against racism. Can you speak to, do you anticipate the turnout to be as high as Haaretz is reporting? And where are the, is, where do the Israeli voices fit? Uh, where do the Arab voices fit in, 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 in these politics? Yeah, so the Palestinian quote-unquote citizens of uh, the Zionist colony, uh, there's they're running a boycott campaign uh, because you know uh, no party can run in the elections in Israel that does not swear allegiance to the Jewish state. Uh, so basically, if you're a party which is a secular party that wants to run for being uh, you know, to create a government that is for all the citizens on the land, you are not allowed to run. So even the quote-unquote uh, Palestinian Arab parties that are in the uh, Knesset currently had to sign that. So most of the Palestinians in the uh, 1948 territories have opted out to boycott. And this led to uh, this huge advertising campaign by many of the major parties, uh, Zionist parties, uh, calling on the Palestinian citizens to vote. Because, you know, ultimately the only role that the Palestinian parties inside the Israeli Knesset uh, play is uh, to give legitimacy to the colonial uh, apparatus to make it look like it is democratic uh, and, and of course, we see them always humiliated in the Knesset and some of them getting death threats right there on the floor of the parliament. Um, so that's on that one hand. On the other hand, of, uh, the major uh, issue right now uh, of the election is uh, the fact that uh, the Zionist uh, colonies signed a uh, deal with uh, Lebanon. Uh, on the territorial waters uh, and about extracting, of course, gas and oil from the fields in the Mediterranean. Netanyahu has promised to rip apart this deal that was just brokered by the Americans, uh, the United States government uh, last week. Um, and of course, if uh, Netanyahu rips this uh, deal, there will be war in the in the uh, in the region here immediately. That's expected. So that is the major issue that uh, elect electors are coming out for, and that's why we have a huge turnout. Uh, who will be leading this colony into either war or uh, peace? 
Beirut, uh, Lebanon, Sputnik reports Lebanon will receive 25,000 tons of wheat and 10,000 tons of fuel free of charge from Russia, acting Lebanese Minister of Public Works and Transport Ala Hamia told Sputnik on Tuesday. Your thoughts, late? Well, of course, this is a huge uh, gift to Lebanon. It's a country that is in chaos uh, financially because of the collapse, uh, you know, manufactured collapse by the United States and its uh, goons here extracting all the dollars from the country. Um, And we have uh, zero electricity currently coming from the government. Uh, You know, I, I just paid today my subscription to the uh, generator monopoly guy from in the neighborhood here, the gangster that runs it, uh, $500 is my bill for electricity a month. Um, and uh, this is, you know, equivalent to my actual rent uh, in Beirut. And this is unbelievable numbers. Uh, so most people, and, and this electricity that I'm getting is just uh, 14 hours a day. I don't get 24 hours a day. So uh, to have, uh, you know, number one, all this uh, uh, delivery of diesel to run the electricity factories in the country, uh, on top of what Iran also promised to deliver as a a gift, uh, will give us at least, uh, you know, six months of uh, electricity and and people can be lifted out of darkness, Um, you know, Russia constantly right now referring to how the majority of fertilizer and wheat deliveries coming out of the Ukraine are ending up in the West and most of Africa and Asia are not receiving their shipments. This is uh, a gesture of uh, love, I think, from Russia to uh, the suffering peoples of the world uh, to gift us uh, such amounts of uh, wheat and fertilizer. Uh, it's, it's amazing. There's a piece in Orinoco Tribune, and I know you touched on this, but I'd like for you to elaborate a little more. Egypt-Palestinian authority deal on Gaza gas fields likely won't serve Palestinians, but Israel instead. And I know that when we talked last week about the deal being done, uh, I think your position was that we're, we're going to have to wait and see how this all shakes out. Uh, your thoughts on on this uh, this report and, and how do you see this moving forward? Yeah, this is um, amazing. Of course, all of the uh, gas fields and oil fields uh, that the Zionists are extracting from are looted resources of the Palestinian people. But more so, of course, when we, even if somebody wants to only abide by the uh, fabricated 1967 borders, this is uh, a gas field that uh, sits in the Gaza waters, and the Palestinians in Gaza are one of the most impoverished populations in the world, uh, under siege with no electricity, no uh, potable water uh, to use. Uh, and uh, what will happen right now with this uh, deal between Egypt and the Zionists and the Palestinian Authority that is collaborating with the Zionists is none of this money will go to the uh, good uh, efforts that are needed to lift each, uh, Gaza out of uh, poverty. Um, you know, the, the, the Egyptians and the Palestinian Authority, both of them, uh, are going to just take whatever money that the Israelis give them 
and allow the continuation of the looting and the Palestinian people will not see one cent of this. Uh, it's, it's, I know Scott Ritter um, tried his luck back on um, on Twitter and he created an account and he wrote in it that, uh, you know, he wrote Bucha was a war crime and Ukraine did it and they shut him back down immediately. They lo- they didn't apparently close the account, but they locked him out of his account immediately. Have you made since the uh, Elon Musk, we only got about 30 or 45 seconds. Have you made any attempt to get back on Twitter? I have sent in uh, requests uh, to appeal uh, my uh, bans, um, which both of them, I've never seen any uh, justification. They didn't give me any justification for the bans. And uh, I haven't heard anything from Elon Musk back yet. Uh, It is, uh, you know, a lot of people are hoping uh, that Musk, uh, you know, brings back some semblance of freedom of speech. But I doubt on big issues like Ukraine and or Palestine that uh, Musk will um, diverge much from the official truth uh, decreed by the state. Laith Marouf is a broadcaster and journalist based in Beirut, Lebanon. You're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm your host, Garland Nixon, with my co-host, Dr. Wilmer Leon. There's more on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back, and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm your host, Garland Nixon, here with my co-host, Dr. Wilmer Leon. Thank you, Garland. A town in Canada is being outed for indigenous abuse and murder as the practice of taking indigenous citizens out of town during the winter and leaving them to freeze to death is coming into international focus. Joining us to discuss this issue, we have Levi Rickert. He's the editor and publisher of NativeNewsOnline.net. Levi, welcome back to The Critical Hour. Hey, it's always good to be talking to you, too. The article, The Dark History of Saskatoon's, quote, starlight tours in which people leave indigenous people to freeze to death. Since at least 1976, police have picked up indigenous men, women and boys, then left them miles outside the city on sub-zero winter nights, leading to what's known as Saskatoon freezing deaths. Levi Rickert, your thoughts? Uh, I think it's just horrible, number one, um, happening up in Canada. Same types of things happen in the United States where the CDC reports that Native Americans are, uh, on a per capita basis, more likely to die at the hands of law enforcement than uh, even African Americans and Hispanics. So this is a horrible situation. That's an incredible parallel uh, to draw, especially when we understand the the special relationship between native nations and the United States government. So it, it's not as though these are happening in urban settings. It, it's it, as I would see this, the, the police have to go well outside their way, particularly in the United States, in order to engage in these practices with Native Americans. Well, I, I think you're right. It's just racism really has no boundaries, and that really speaks to racism. Anytime you take indigenous people, whether they are in Canada or here in the United States, and seek them out and and uh, abuse them, and some of them ultimately die, in this case, freeze to death, or 
some cases in Oklahoma and other parts of Indian country where they, they're taken to jail and they mysteriously die. And, and, of course, the police can put anything they want in those police reports. Let me read the beginning of this article because people may not exactly know what we're talking about. For decades, the Saskatoon Police Service engaged in a practice known as Starlight Tours. After picking up indigenous people on charges ranging from drunkenness to vagrancy, officers would drive them outside the city limits and leave them there, often in sub-freezing temperatures. And while the practice was well known within indigenous communities in Saskatchewan, it gained widespread notoriety after the Saskatoon freezing deaths in 2000, when the bodies of two men were discovered near a power plant, a third man that had barely survived being left by police at the same power plant. And as recently as 2018, indigenous men have continued to claim that Saskatoon police still engage in taking them on deadly starlight tours. Here's the thing about this. They're not this isn't an instance even where they're saying they were fighting the police, they were killing them, they were they, nothing. These were people who had in many instances misdemeanors, the most minor of crimes. And because they could, it was a, a reckless and aggressive and assertive disregard for human life simply because they could. It's like a genocidal kind of mentality going on here. Your thoughts, Levi? Well, I would agree. And police brutality there, again, has no boundaries. Uh, the American Indian Movement was actually formed in 1968 as a result of police brutality up in Minneapolis-St. Paul. I mean, in, in some cases, they did result in deaths. But many cases, they were picked up on weekends, made to do uh, uh, menial tasks around the city, paint, whatever. But they wanted to get Native people off the streets. And so it, it's it's it's... To me, it's a criminal, uh, it's a mentality, it's a racist mentality that exists in the United States, in, in this case, Canada. So it's just horrible. And they talk about in this story a young man, Neil Stonechild, who wound up face down dead in a field. Police closed the investigation into his death in three days, but the practice of taking Indigenous people on starlight tours continued. In fact, an investigation found that police were intentionally targeting indigenous Americans in what became known as the Saskatoon freezing deaths. To your knowledge, have any police officers been charged? Have any police officers been prosecuted, let alone convicted for engaging in these practices? To my knowledge, no. And that's, that's a dirty shame. Uh, I know of a situation here in the United States uh, where, where, these officers entered this home. Uh, somebody had this mental uh, breakdown, and within 19 seconds, he was shot to death, multiple shots. Parents told to leave the house, stayed in the car until the uh, Oklahoma uh, investigation crew from miles, hundreds of miles away could come. It sat in the car, never told that their son was dead killed within uh, 19 seconds of entering that home. And this is the deal. These officers who were involved got citations. They got, they were, they, they were given uh, uh, awards for their, for their, um, for their violence that they perpetrated against this native guy. It's like they're, they're made to be heroes in some cases, let alone prosecuted. You know, I tell you one of the things that really made this story jump out at me, we've been reporting Iran lately and um, Canada recently, a, a woman um, died. This is in a country of 90 million people. A woman died in police custody in Iran. Canada 
is now asking the U.N. Um, to act. The U.S. is asking the U.S. to act. Canada is pushing for more sanctions against Iran. And I thought, Canada? After recently we've found that hundreds, if not thousands of children literally died at the hands of the Canadians, children who were taken from their families and put in these homes. Now we find that Canada, police in Canada, are taking civilian indigenous people out and just recklessly murdering them and the hypocrisy that they would look at any other country in the world and say, we have to sanction X country because of anything that happened regarding the police with this unthinkable history of brutality and murder. To me, Canada has as bad a record of murder and genocide against indigenous people as any country in the world. Your thoughts, Levi? That, that's very true, and, and that word that you just said, hypocrisy, hypocrisy, however you want to say it, that word is what popped in my mind as soon as, as you said that, and it is it's nothing but hypocrisy, and it's, 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 it's time that people call them out on it, and, and really, I would love to see the United Nations investigate these types of uh, uh, the, the, taking these, these Native people out and, and just leaving them freeze to death. They should be investigated. This should be brought to light to worldwide attention. As you mentioned, the Indian, uh, the residential boarding schools up there in Canada, and, and you know, to, uh, to her credit, we have U.S. Uh, Department Interior uh, Secretary Deb Holland, who's been investigating what's happened in the United States. But they need to have that thorough investigation in Canada as well. You just basically went to my next question, which was the how broad of a story, what kind of traction, uh, if any, is this story getting? Oh, I, I think that's the problem, and, and, and it's what happens is. Indigenous peoples, even around the world, but certainly here in the United States and in Canada, we have not always had a voice. That's one of the strengths of, uh, I'm proud of the work that we do at Native News Online. We try to bring these types of things out and put them in to, to the attention. And the Indian boarding schools, we've done over 150 stories about Indian boarding schools in the last 18 months. And, and I, I don't say that to pat myself on the back, but I'm going to tell you, Sometimes we feel like we're the voice in the wilderness, and and but uh, so I'm happy I'm even on your show today to talk about these types of things. Yeah, and and you know here's what I think too, and, and you've got to take this into account. This is a, apparently a city or small town in um, in Canada, and this story got out. But when you see the callousness with which these people acted towards the lives of indigenous people, this is a cultural issue. This is Canadian culture. This is the people saying, you know, you just kill these people like you're hunting rabbits, basically. A person, a police officer just sees somebody walking down the street, gets in the car. They have a duty. It doesn't even come to mind that they have a duty to treat these people as human beings. They just literally take them out and murder them. And here's what I think to myself. How many towns in Canada and maybe even the United States is this happening where there are no stories, there are no articles, there's nobody in Washington, D.C. on Radio Sputnik talking to Levi Rickard about it because all of these people are being murdered and genocided, if that is a word. I think I just made it up. But um, anyway, your thoughts on that, uh, Levi? Well, you're very true. It's it's the... The whole thing is that uh, indigenous voices have not been heard. People don't pay attention to us. Uh, I, I would say in recent years it's gotten a little better, but 
really, when you, when you read these stories that happened just recent, in recent, you know, as far as latest 2018, we still have a lot of work to do in terms of getting these stories out and hopefully people will pay attention. Those with human hearts, those who value humanity, and that's the problem with racism. The value of human life is not there when it comes to people of color. You have a story in uh, Native News Online. This election is about continuing our democracy. Your thoughts, Levi Rickard? Well, we have, and it's going to be released this weekend. Uh, we did a, a survey of Native Americans, and we wanted to get to voting behavior patterns, what they're, what's, what's concerning them. And in our case, uh, uh, we asked the question. Are they, is democracy, uh, should we be worried about democracy? And, and 91% of our respondents said yes. And so I wrote a commentary uh, along that line that Native Americans who we have fought in the military at a higher rate than any racial ethnic group in the United States. Or why do people go to war? especially in the United States, to fight democracy, keep our freedom, but yet the very freedom, the very democracy that Native people have fought for and other people have fought for have been so callously thrown around and disregarded by especially the GOP. It just makes my heart sad. Um, before we go, your your um, your news uh, uh, outlet, nativenewsonline.net. Can you tell us a bit about it and what you know, where uh, what you what you do, what you cover, things of that nature? Well, it's 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 a uh, one of the most read Native American daily news publications in America, and you could argue in Canada and around the world. Um, we have over six million page viewers every year come to us. We cover the important issues impacting Native Americans today, governmental policies in Washington, at state level, covering the election, uh, the Indian boarding schools. We just, just the whole, really the whole gamut in terms of what's important to Native Americans. And uh, I started in 2011 and it has grown and we want to see its growth to, to uh, continue. We would certainly recommend to all of our listeners to check it out and to save that on your homepage so you can go there regularly. It's nativenewsonline.net. We're talking to the editor and publisher, Levi Rickert. You're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm your host, Garland Nixon, with my co-host, Dr. Wilmer Leon. There's more on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back, and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm your host, Garland Nixon, with my co-host, Dr. Wilmer Leon. Thank you, Garland. President Putin has skewered U.S. foreign policy for the absurdity of simultaneous military and economic confrontation with two nuclear powers. Joining us now to discuss this and more, we have Ray McGovern. Ray is a former CIA analyst and co-founder of Veteran Intelligence Professionals for Sanity. Ray, welcome back to The Critical Hour. Thank you. In antiwar.com, Ray McGovern has a great article. It's called 
Putin skewers U.S. ineptitude, speaking on October 27 at the Valdai International Discussion Club. Russian President Vladimir Putin questioned the sanity of those who would, quote, spoil relations with China at the same time they are supplying billions worth of weapons to Ukraine in a fight against Russia. Ray McGovern, your thoughts. Well, this is quite interesting because uh, Putin was speaking his mind during this three-hour countdown, three-hour Q&A questions and answers after his speech in Valdai last week. Um, <laughs> this business about uh, why any sane person would take on two major competitors and drive them together and make them a common enemy, you know, it defies logic, as Putin says. Uh, here he talks, let me just quote just a, a couple sentences. Quote, frankly, and this is Putin speaking, frankly, I, I don't know why they are doing this. Uh, are they sane? It, 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 seems to, it seems that it runs completely counter to common sense and logic. This is simply crazy. And then he goes on to say, you know, it may seem that there is some subtle profound plot behind this. But I think there's nothing there. No no subtle thought. It's just nonsense and arrogance, nothing else. Such irrational actions are rooted in arrogance and a sense of impunity, end quote. Well, I was interested to hear Putin be that specific uh, because I think a lot of people would agree with that. Uh, the, the narrative is quite different in the major media, but it just makes no sense. I mean, you could belong to a gang in the Bronx. Now, I didn't belong to any, okay, but in my neighborhood, there were the Fordham Baldies, named after Fordham Road. Up, up a little uh, east of there, or west of there, were the Jerome so-and-sos, and then the Tremont so-and-sos. Now, the Fordham Baldies had sharp knives, uh, and they realized that if they put the Tremont People uh, against the the other guys, Jerome Avenue, they'd be really in bad shape because it'd be two against one. I mean, it's that simple. And so there was no provocation by the Fordham Baldies uh, of either of them, least of all uh, in a way that would provoke both of them to join arms against the Fordham Baldies. Now, that's pretty rudimentary. Uh, that kind of gang outlook uh, applies across the board. Why would anybody? Well, I guess I guess Putin puts his finger on it. It's uh, rooted in arrogance. Apparently, these fellows, uh, Jake Sullivan and uh, what's his name, Anthony Blinken, you know, they're they're exceptional. I mean, they've been told they're exceptional since they were born with a silver spoon in their mouths. They went to the exceptional schools. You know, they were just as exceptional as the people who advised President, who advised President Kennedy to go into Vietnam that we could lick those barefoot jungle warriors. The French couldn't do it, but we could do it. Yeah, right. The result, three million. Count them, three million Vietnamese dead or was it 56 or so thousand, 58,000, I think, U.S. dead. So, you know, these people are entitled. 
they are kind of really impressed with themselves. And they have this, let's call it, they have this arrogance that allows them to think that the U.S. can prevail. And the sooner they get to, get to realize that this is no longer the case, that is pretty much the whole point of Putin's speech here, the better for all of us. Because first and foremost, they have to realize that when it comes to Ukraine. It's also very interesting and very sobering to to listen to President Putin. And then you can go back last week and or maybe 10 days ago and, and, and read President Xi's speech at the fifth uh, communist uh, uh, gathering because he spoke in, in a similar in, in a similar context. And I guess getting to Putin's point, it's one thing if this were a territorial dispute or if if the argument were about access to resources to where you actually have one side debating with another side about a tangible reality, a, a misinterpretation uh, of a tangible reality. But here, you've got nothing. You've got absolute, there is no reason for the United States to be fighting with Russia, trying to pick a fight with China, trying to pick a fight with North Korea. It makes, abs there's, where is the upside and where is the win? Well, I think I, I could not answer better than Solzhenitsyn did himself. He gave this Harvard commencement address way back in, gosh, I think it was 1978 or something like that. Yeah. That sounds right. That he sounds said, right. And I, and I quote, a continuous blindness of superiority is typical of the West. Uh, the West upholds the belief that vast regions everywhere on our planet should develop and mature to the level of present-day Western systems. Now, why that should be so uh, is sort of best answered by these sophomores like Blinken and Sullivan. I guess the answer would be because because we're the best, we're the greatest, and look, you know, we were the leaders of the world, and we are indeed exceptional. We're even indispensable. I think some of these unwashed folks actually believe that. Now, Biden should be wise enough to them by now. I, I guess maybe we'll give him the, the benefit of the doubt. I, I guess he's just not smart enough to realize that these guys have left us, have led us down the garden path to the prospect of a major war involve, involving China and Russia against us. It doesn't make any sense, but yet they keep going. And, uh, you know, it's really kind of, uh, well, it's sort of distressing because there doesn't seem to be any abiding by the, the old international rules, which were, you know, embedded in the United Nations Charter and, and other international rules that govern things. No, no, we, we do, what do we do? We do a rules-based international order. And, and Putin went into that as well. You know, he, he sort of made fun of, of this. He said, you know what, quote, I was tempted to say, we're, we know who made up these rules, but perhaps that wouldn't be accurate. We have no idea whatsoever who made up these rules. What these rules are based on? 
oh, what is contained inside these rules. It looks like we are witnessing an attempt to enforce just one rule where those in power could live without could live without following any rules at all and could get away with anything. <laughs> well, you know, if you look at the conduct of U.S. foreign policy, you don't have to go back uh, even beyond uh, the attack on Iraq and Afghanistan and Libya and all that stuff. Well, what kind of rules have uh, have governed that? So they're seeing right through this. And what I'm, what I'm really, really anxious about is that uh, there's no real prospect of any of this changing uh the Russians have put out a couple of feelers now that they would be able to talk on Ukraine. Uh, but there's no real prospect that at least before the before the uh, uh, the midterm elections, uh, Biden would feel to uh, to anything short of, of being, uh, you know, Superman uh, stroke, striking his breast and saying we're going to take on China as well as Russia. Doesn't make any sense, and it uh, gives me great pause as to the ability of a guy like Biden to think through think through things carefully. You know, Ray, you mentioned the ignorance of the Biden administration on the relationship between Russia and China, but that goes all the way down to Congress. I would like to get your comment on the you know what is now the infamous document where thirty uh, progressives, uh, ostensible progressives. Um, wrote a request to Biden, and it was a mealy mouth request, but it mentioned um, using diplomacy. And within 24 hours, they walked away from it. And now we're seeing videos online where they're getting verbally accosted by their constituents who are saying, we don't want nuclear war, we want peace. And instead of talking to their constituents, they then go home and attack their constituents online, calling them propagandists for demanding diplomacy. Diplomacy and peace. Your thoughts on that, Ray? Well, uh, Carlin, the way you get elected in this country is with money. And the money comes from the Mickey Mat, the military, industrial, congressional, intelligence, media, academia, think tank complex. That's what this is all about. They got calls from Lockheed, from Raytheon, from all the other people that, that uh, finance these campaigns. And they said, look, we can't have uh, we can't have talks between Biden and Putin. No, no, that might bring peace. We need war. We need to manufacture weapons. We need to sell weapons. We need to put that money in not only our pockets, but in yours, congressmen and senators. And that's the way you win. So none of this peace business, at least until after the uh, midterms are passed. And the media aspect of this, Ray, is really, to me, the, the most telling, uh, because we've gone from some level of, of independent media at, at some point now to mere propaganda. And so it, it's, it's virtually impossible for people in this country to get any level of independent uh, analysis unless they really, really go out in search of it. We have about a minute left. Well, unless they they listen to us, right? <laughs> <laughs> and and they I have mean, to go are... out and search to find <laughs> us. Yes. Yeah. Well, there there are not many of us left, but there are enough. Okay. Uh, I have to say that uh, Cesar Chavez used to say when he was embarked on a major adventure that people say, "No, oh, there aren't enough of us." And he said, "There are enough of us, but nothing's going to happen without action." 
Now, that happens to be the case. We have to get off our derriers and act, invade our congressional offices, invade the people that make public opinion and show them that we don't, we don't stand for these lies any longer, not after what happened in Iraq, not what, after what's happened in all these other struggles where General Petraeus is still the go-to guy, liar through his teeth as he is. We need to change that. I don't know exactly how we do it, but I do know that it requires getting off your derriere. General Betray Us. I think that's what I heard you say. Ray McGovern, uh, the name of the article is Putin Skewers U.S. Ineptitude. It's by Ray McGovern, and you can find that at antiwar.com. Also, go to raymcgovern.com to, to check out all of Ray's great work. You're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm your host, Garland Nixon, with my co-host, Dr. Wilmer Leon. There's more on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm your host, Garland Nixon, with my co-host, Dr. Wilmer Leon. Thank you, Garland. John Kiriakou is in West Jerusalem on the ground in Israel reporting on the election. Benjamin Netanyahu moves to regain power with his far right wing movement. Joining us to discuss this story is John himself. John, welcome back to The Critical Hour. Thank you so much for having me. Well, I know the voting is going on today. So what's happening? What are you hearing in Israel? Well, I'm going to blow my own horn first and say that I got up very early, um, connected with this driver I made friends with the other day, and I went all over Jerusalem just to take a look at what early voting looks like here. And I'll tell you, you wouldn't even know there was an election today. There's almost no campaigning. There are almost no uh, election posters or campaign signs or anything. Um, I went to a half a dozen different polling places, and there were no lines anywhere. Uh, at midday, the, the polls open at seven and they're opened, uh, they're open until 10 o'clock tonight. So at midday, I got an update from Haaretz. I'm on their mailing list. And they said that, that this is the heaviest turnout in the last nine elections, except in Jerusalem. In Jerusalem, it's running about 25 percent behind mm. what it was in the last election. Now, what that means is there are a lot of um, Israeli Arabs, Muslims, who are registered to vote because they're Israeli citizens. They live in Jerusalem. And the conventional wisdom has been for the last several days that if Arab turnout is high, Netanyahu loses. If Arab turnout is low, Netanyahu wins. So as of mid-afternoon, um, and it's it's eight o'clock here right now as we're as we're taping this, it looks like well they're projecting that Netanyahu and his four known uh, uh, coalition partners are looking at fifty-nine to sixty-two votes. You need sixty-one votes to win, so it's going to be very very close, and it all depends on the number of Arabs who are elected to the Knesset today. Have you gotten any sense of an Arab boycott? Yeah, maybe not a boycott with a capital B, but a boycott in the respect that when they do turn out to vote, 
they have nothing to show for it, right? Uh, settlements are progressing apace. Uh, the, the IDF and the intelligence services are not just active in the West Bank and Gaza, but more Palestinians have been killed this year than in the last five years. And so the Arabs that I talked to, and I've, I've spoken to a lot of Arabs the last three days, none of them could come up with a legitimate reason why they would turn out uh, to vote when they get nothing when they do vote. Um, what are you hearing? We, you know, from here, what we hear is, you know, there's a new group called the Lions Den. There's been, the, you know, uh, a Uday, Uday Tamimi attack, and there's been a number of Israeli settlers and soldiers. It seems like that there's, you know, uh, kind of a lot of firing going on in the uh, in the occupied territories. Things are kind of heated up. What are you hearing about that? And is that affecting the election or anything? It is. It's very um, it's very disappointing to a lot of Arabs because they they feel like they've played the game the way they were supposed to play. They worked within the, the structure, the confines of the political system. And at the same time, their friends, their family members are uh, are being beaten. They're being shot in the West Bank. Uh, the lion's den is active in Nablus. It was founded in Nablus just a few months ago. The IDF attacked what they said was a was a lion's den stronghold. They ended up killing six people, but two of the six who were killed were just two barbers who happened to be sitting in their barber chairs waiting for customers to come in. And so, you know, like I say, they're just so disappointed um, in the fact that they've they've done what they were asked to do. They've done what they were asked to do, um, and there's been no slowdown in settlements. There've been there's been no ease in the restrictions put uh, on their villages and towns in the West Bank, and um, they're just kind of given up. How do you see that frustration uh, manifesting itself? Is it well, two things? One, is it becoming more? Vi- is that frustration turning into violence? And the other uh, the other question is: We were reading early that the lion's den, and this was from Haaretz and some other Israeli sources, that the lion's den was just a small, a, a ragtag small group of uh, frustrated young men. But the sense that we've been getting from folks we've been talking to is, no, 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 it's it's a lot larger than, than stated. It runs a lot deeper than stated. And time is going to demonstrate the new direction that the lion's den is going to take your thoughts. Yeah, that's a great question. Um, and, and you're right that the lion's den is a small new ragtag group of people, but that's how all of these groups got started. And sometimes the frustration just boils over. And, you know, when, when people have nothing to look forward to, nothing to, to hope for, to plan for their frustrations, get the better of them. We've seen this happen countless times here in Israel, of course, and, um, and around the world. So I think that the Israeli government is very worried that that's, what's going to happen here. They have their hands full with Hamas in Gaza. They have, uh, you know, other groups in the, in the West bank, including a, a nascent ISIS presence. They have the, the myriad of, of older Palestinian groups and now yet another one. So I think that they're, that they're very frustrated with that. But another source of their frustration, this is something that's new for me, um, is the fact that, that the Israeli body politic has moved so far to the right, so far to the right that 
that there's a new party here expected to pick up six seats today, led by a man who has been charged in the past with terrorism for firing at innocent Palestinian civilians just walking down the street. You know, and now he's a mainstream politician and he very well could become part of a coalition government. So they, they really do feel frustrated to the point that they just can't they can't do this anymore. I remember a number of years ago when this uh, beautiful Palestinian woman blew herself up in a in an Israeli restaurant. And there was a piece in Time magazine called Why We Blow Ourselves Up. And it was written by this uh, Palestinian psychiatrist, Iyad, Dr. Iyad El-Saraj. And the point that he made in his piece was people from in the West view these types of actions as actions of the insane. What they need to understand is that this frustration has now become desperation. And once the people become desperate, this is an enemy you will never defeat. Absolutely correct. It is desperation. You know, I remember I remember a colleague of mine at the CIA right after 9-11 saying that, that the hijackers were insane. And I said, oh no, on the contrary. I think they were very deliberate. They were very sane. It's just that they hate us more than they love life itself. And when you're so oppressed for so many years over the course of generations, and there is literally no way that you can ever get out of that situation, then sometimes you resort to desperate measures. Well, you know, John, this may sound like a weird story, but, you know, I live, grew up near the water, near the Chesapeake Bay. And when I was a kid, I didn't understand animals. I was like 10 or 11, and I saw some little ducks and a mother duck, and I decided— I'm going to pick up one of these ducks. Well, I don't have to tell you what happened. I walked towards the duck, and this little duck that was five or six pounds, this mother duck attacked me. I could have easily killed the duck. Was that duck insane? (laughs) No, that duck wasn't insane. It had decided that it was going. I was going to have to go through that duck to get to those children, and I think that's what we're talking about here. But throwing another question at you, Bibi Netanyahu has said with the Lebanon um, gas extraction deal that if he gets in power, he will rip it up. And there are those that says that could lead to some kind of a military confrontation in Lebanon with Hamas or whatever. Has there been any 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 discussion at all that you've heard of um, from any of the people that you've talked to about that at all? Or do they have to so focus on their day-to-day survival that they don't really have time? What are your thoughts? The only person who mentioned that to me was, uh, was a rabbi, a very, very conservative rabbi who agreed with Netanyahu's position. You know, this was a, this was a historic uh, a deal. And it's only, what, a week or two old. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't involve just the, uh, the Lebanese, but also the Cypriots, the Greeks, and the Egyptians. They're all going to share in this gas wealth uh, from this field that's that's off the coast here. And um, for Netanyahu to rip it up is going to damage relations with the Greeks and Cypriots. It's going to damage relations with the Egyptians. But it's going to cause serious problems with the Lebanese. I could see, for example, Hezbollah reacting to this. Remember, Hezbollah is a part, a legitimate part of the Lebanese government. It's not just some crazed terrorist group that, you know, blows up embassies. They're, they're, they're mainstream now in Lebanon. So I think that would be a grave mistake. Plus, you know, Netanyahu was cut out of the Abraham Accords, right? Because he wasn't prime minister at the time. Um, 
you can be conservative, you can be Zionist, and you can still be a, a peacemaker. Well, to respect this this border, this offshore border um, agreement would be an act of peace. I think this would be a terrible mistake. And with that, what then do you attribute Netanyahu's motivations towards? Is it just sheer hatred and that there's absolutely anything that has to do with Hamas, anything that has to do with Hezbollah is just an absolute no? That's that's another good question, Wilmer. You know, one of the things that I've discovered here, I've only been to Israel twice and and it's two trips in the last six weeks, right? You can't really appreciate the the level of, of hatred between the Arabs Vitriol. and the Jews. Vitriol. But I mean it's so it's so deeply ingrained in, in the two sides because of these decades of conflict that you you can't you can't just automatically assume that either side is going to make a well-reasoned, well-considered, well-thought-out policy decision. They react emotionally to these things. And I think that's what we're seeing here in this case of Netanyahu and the and the maritime border. I think when when children are taught that Palestinians are animals and when when you have Palest when you have Israeli Zionist leadership saying why would we negotiate with these people? Do, I mean, with these, why why would we negotiate? You don't negotiate with animals. I mean, that speaks volumes. It, it does. It speaks volumes. And like I said, I mean, I've I've been working on the Middle East or or living in the Middle East for much of my adult life, and even I didn't have a true appreciation for how deep the, the hatred and distrust is on both sides. All right, uh, John. Let's do it. It's time. Let's give it. Give us a prediction. What's going to happen today, John? And I know it's tight, but we got to give a, have a prediction so that when we have you back on uh, tomorrow, we can we can, uh, you know, have a direction to go. Well, there's a real danger today that that the Labor Party, which governed Israel for for much of its existence um, and Meretz, the the other left wing party, will not even make the three and a quarter percent threshold to be represented in the Knesset. Um, I think that these these far right wing Zionist parties are going to win more than they had won in any previous election. The Arabs aren't turning out today. And I think I hate to say it, but I think even though it's going to be close, I think Netanyahu is going to come back. John Kiriakou is a journalist. He's an author and host of Political Misfits right here midday on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. You've been listening to The Critical Hour here on Radio Sputnik. Thank you for allowing our voices into your space. On behalf of myself and my co-host, Dr. Wilmer Leon, we hope you are informed and enlightened. We look forward to talking with you all tomorrow right here on Radio Sputnik. Be safe, peace, and blessings. We are out. 